0: I love it when this scripture comes around. So, let me ask you this question. Somebody says, would you like more to drink? Or would you like more food? What is it that you say to them? If you don't want it, you say, no, I'm good. I love it when people do that. Because I say, no, I actually hate it, but that's okay. Because I say, do you want more? Because you're not good. Jesus says so. Right? So answer the question. That's always my thing to my kids. Like if we if someone's going to ask you a question, don't answer. Don't don't, you know, actually answer what they're Do you want more to drink? No thank you. I don't want more to drink. No thank you. I'm good. It's just it's a very interesting cultural thing that we do. And I love it when the scripture comes around because it just reminds me of it. My family hates it cuz I say it probably 10 times a week at least. So I think it's interesting that we start out with that. I'm good. I'm good. But let me back up a little bit. For the past number of weeks, and then we sort of took a break so we could celebrate Christmas, I've been working through what's called a catechism. And this one is called the New City Catechism. And catechism is a way that Christians traditionally have taught the faith, have taught the doctrine of the faith, to people who are either believers or who want to be Christians. And it is in a question and answer format. Yeah, this is just a very traditional way that we've taught. And it's when probably Jen, when you went through catechism or your, your schooling, they probably had a catechism that they used for your catechism, which is sort of a redundancy. But it's catechism comes from the word catechesis, which means teaching. So, so we've been working through this, really looking at the doctrine of the church. And, and the doctrines of Christianity, or at least what we consider to be Orthodox Western Christianity, we could drill down even further than that, Orthodox Reformed Western Christianity, we could, well, we won't go any further than that. Christianity is so confusing if you're not in the family. It's confusing enough when you're in the family. But as we talked about, we talk about, well, who are we? and what are we for? Well, the chief end of man, as an old catechism, the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man, or the chief end of humanity, or the chief end of all people, is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. To enjoy God. Like, worship, study, service, all of that is supposed to be to glorify God, yes, to give God glory, but to enjoy it. Like, to enjoy God. And I don't know that many of us in growing up in churches, if you grew up in a church, ever thought that it was much enjoyable. Woohoo! Going to church! Though, some many years ago, I'll never forget when we first had this service in, or a service like this in our fellowship hall, we had couches that were in the front row. And it was quarter to the hour. And as you, if you don't know Westminster very well, you'll, you'll just know there's a thing called Westminster Time. People show up about, you know, 10 minutes after the hour-ish. But it's quarter tell. and here are these two young boys and their dad trailing behind. They're sprinting down the sidewalk. And they come to the door. I'm like, wow, you guys are here really early. And they're like, Yeah, yeah, we want to get a good seat for church. What is wrong with you is what I was thinking. But then I was like, this is awesome. So cool that they wanted a good seat. They wanted a cushy couch seat for church. Now, hey, there's one way to get kids to come to church. To enjoy God. And then, we, and then we learn more about who God is, and we believe that God is the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of all things. I'm not going to get all into that, but it, what we, we call that the trinity, a tri-unity, if we want to get a little more specific, that you can't separate out the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that traditional language, that they, they each have roles that they play in a sense but they all do it. They all participate. So all of them were involved in creation. All of them are involved in redemption. All of them are involved in sustenance or sustaining. Um, We might think of one being more associated with that than the other, but they're all associated with it. So, So God is a trinity, and God is a God of love. God calls the Israelites together because God loves them. God looks upon their plight and loves them and calls them together. And then as God calls them together and they begin to become the covenant people, God gives to Moses the first parts of what we call the law. And what are those things that he gives to Moses? The 10 commandments. The 10 commandments. So that's sort of the centerpiece of what we know of as the law. And so then gives to Moses the law. And we think of, I think oftentimes, and I've talked about this many times, that the, we think of the law as a burden. Something we have to do. Something we have to comply with. And, and in many ways in our civil lives, yes, it is. The law says if you're going to be a hairdresser, you've got to go through school and you've got to, you've got to pass a test and you've got to have a license from the state. Right. If you're going to be a massage therapist, if you're going to be probably, I mean, doctors, lawyers, all these, you have to take tests. You have to adhere by the law. And sometimes the laws seem sort of silly and superfluous, but they're there for some reason. We often think of them as a burden. I think in the church, we often think of them as a burden as well. Because we wonder, well, what, what function do they serve for us? Why is the law here? Because, because here's the thing. If you begin to get Christianity, you understand that it is it's a faith based on love and based on grace and based on forgiveness. The good news is about being released from the law because of Jesus, or at least released from the law in the way that we usually understand it, because we think of the law as a quid pro quo. Right? And, that, and quid pro quos work great in contracts. I'm going to do this, you're going to do that. I'm going to do this, you're going to do that. A lot of marriages work this way. A lot of negotiating going on in relationships. I'll do this, you do that. You have the dishwasher, I'll take out the trash. You take care of the kids on this day, I'll take care of the kids on that day. You know, a lot of negotiation, a lot of quid pro quo that goes on in a marriage. Now, a marriage is much more than quid pro quo, but a lot of marriages just function on that level. And it's okay, it works, but there's a lot more to a marriage to a relationship that's filled with love than quid pro quo. All right. I could go into four levels of love, but I'm not going to. So the law fulfills some functions for us as Christians. The Reformation Study Bible talks about it this way that there's a threefold use of the law. And I'm not going to name them all, they each have particular names, I'm not going to go into that, I didn't want to get that technical, but I'm going to read, just because I liked how this, how the Reformation Study Bible, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So the first use is a mirror to reflect God's perfect righteousness and our sinfulness and brokenness and shortcomings. Oh, one of the things I forgot to talk about is what we've, we did talk about is how sin, in, how sin came into the picture and how we, we are all tainted with sin. I'm not going to get into that, but so the law is, is, in a sense, to remind us of that. To reflect God's perfect righteousness and our sinfulness and shortcomings. In the scripture, whenever a, a divine being appears, what is the, what's usually like the first thing that people say? Angel appears and they say what? Right? Don't be afraid because they know that the person is afraid because anytime we experience the divine, we see ourselves differently. Oftentimes we see ourselves more completely and wholly. We see how we are not wholly set apart like that divine thing. I don't know about you, like, people often say, I, you know, I, I get experiences of the, of the divine out in nature. And that is a, it's a wonderful, beautiful kind of thing. And oftentimes we feel, all of a sudden, we feel taken out of ourselves and very connected with nature. When I've had those experiences, I'll let you into know my spiritual experience, not very often, I have also come away going I'm falling short on some things. That this being connected reminds me also of where I'm not maybe fulfilling my relationships, where I'm not living up to the things that this beautiful creation or the experience of the spirit of with God would lead me into. And so, so, um, as we experience the divine, we often, we often see ourselves, and we, and more clearly, as beautiful creatures of God, but also as broken creatures of God. And a mirror to reflect God's perfect righteousness and our sinfulness and shortcomings. And so, what happens is then, we, because of our world, because of the way we've constructed our world and the way that, the way that human beings operate... Is It's a quid pro quo world. We think it's a meritocracy kind of world, that if I work hard, I get things, and that's we can talk about that later, but, but that's the way we think. We think, well, if I just work hard, then somebody's going to give me something. And so we often then believe that that's how God works. If I fulfill the law, if I do everything perfectly, God will love me. That's not how God works. As one writer wrote, God is a prodigal God. God loves us well before any of that mess. God loves us in spite of all our mess. And in some ways, I would say because of all our mess. And God sent God's Son. This is a horrible metaphor. I'm going to use it to clean up our mess and to help us to see that there's another way. And it isn't by seeking to follow the law perfectly because we can never fulfill it because we are tainted with sin. And so when we seek to fulfill it and we grow weary of fulfilling it because it does feel like a burden. Because we come up short and we realize that even our best efforts are somehow tainted with sin. And we come up short and when we finally come to ourselves we have to open our hands and ask for grace. It's just like when we hurt somebody that we're close to. Whether we did it inadvertently or whether we did it purposefully, there's a time when we get confronted with that and we go, you know, I need to ask for their grace. I can't fix what I did. And to be honest, I may do it again, even though I don't intend to. And so we seek to fulfill the law, and we fall short, and we grow weary of it, and we come to ask for grace, and we, we come to know of our need, as, the, as sort of an orthodox position would say, of our need for a Savior, of our need for God, to set us free from this idea that we're going to save ourselves that we're going to somehow, in the good American way, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and become better. The second use of the law is called the civil use of the law. To restrain evil. Love that phrase. Basically, civil use of the law is that when the law... Especially like we look at the Ten Commandments, like Ten Commandments are often in our, our law courts and, and they're on county properties and all this sort of thing. And because the Ten Commandments in some ways are part of the basis of, of our understanding of morality and laws and we, and we look at things. Through that lens, often an attorney could, of course, give you all the background and history of where how our judicial system came to be, but, but the civil use of the law is to restrain evil. Though it's interesting to me that, that this, at least in the Reformation Study Bible, it talks about that it helps to restrain evil because of threat of punishment. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because you know, for so many in in so many churches, even even today, there 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 are churches where when you go to church, you're going to be told how bad you are, and reminded of how bad you are, and if you don't get your stuff together, that God is just going to burn you up and weave your ashes. So you better get right with Jesus. (laughs) Fire and brimstone, as we say, the threat of judgment. I'll be honest, that doesn't work for me. Bring it. <laughs> you know? Like, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a rebel. Like, that doesn't... Yeah, a little bit. That doesn't... Judgment, because it seems, especially in the, in the nature of God, it seems so far off to me. But that's just... but civil use of the law, I think, for a lot of us. Like, I don't want to pay a fine. Right? I mean, one, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to murder somebody. I don't, I don't want to go to jail. You know, I mean, there is that, right? Like, with our parents, like, when they put boundaries around things, there is a threat of judgment on a, on a smaller scale, right? I don't want to get in trouble. I want to be home on time. Whatever that is. So I guess there is, this is the civil use of the law to restrain evil and to, and under the threat of punishment. Third. Third use of the law is a guide for the believer two good works. And well, and I got to put this on there, a guide for the believer, two good works that God already has planned for us. So as some would say, it's before you're a Christian, you're a degenerate. After you're a Christian, you're a regenerate. So it's a guide for the regenerate because you've been regenerated. You have a new life, two good works. One writer said, the Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation, but is under the law of Christ as a way of life. What did Jesus say? Love one another as I have loved you. When it asked what the centerpiece of the law was, Jesus said, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So under the law of Christ, which doesn't get rid of the rest of the law necessarily. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And another writer said that you should preach that the law is fulfilled, it is dead. I love that. And that in Christ we have this new life so that we can be released from our sin to the good works that God has for us. So three purposes of the law, as a mirror, a civil use, and a guide to the believer. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And so let's look at this scripture just for a minute. This Young man comes to Jesus and says, "Well, what do what do I need to do to have eternal life? What do I, I mean? I'm I'm here. I, I want to engage. And 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 as a Jewish person, like the, we're engaging the law. That's what we're supposed to do. We're keeping the law as faithful Jewish people. And he says, "Well." And then, of course, he says, why do you ask me who's good? There's only one who's good. Yes. And then he says, well, well, you know, keep the commandments. And he says, well, in which ones? And Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, don't steal, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, I got that. No problem. Jesus says, okay. Sell your possessions, give them to the poor. Because the mirror that needed to be held up for this person, apparently, this person, in this particular case, was the fact that he loved his possessions more than he loved God. Do not have any other gods before me. As one writer says, does this mean that everybody's supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor? No. If something is keeping you from having God as the first priority in your life, that thing, you need to uncouple yourself from that thing, whatever it is. In this case, we call him the rich young ruler. In this case, it's possessions. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he means rich person. He means someone who has material goods, because oftentimes we are such idolaters at heart. I just believe this, that we love our things much more than we love God or we love the things that can get us more things, much more than we love God. And so Jesus goes on in this, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then the disciples say, well, who can be saved? Well, this is a great first use of the law. Who can be saved? Because we've now come to the place where we're weary of trying to adhere to the law. We're coming to grace. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, what? For mortals, it is impossible. But for God, So even us, whatever state of degenerate or regenerate we are in, (laughs) through Jesus the Christ, we are already saved. Set free from our sin and set free from the law as a means of salvation so that we might do the good works that God has given us to do. So may those good works come to you naturally and clearly that you might love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself as Jesus loved us. Amen.